On this exciting episode of Starpod Trek, we consider the Star Trek contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 37 and 38 from 1980. Star Trek customer Tom reflects on the Enterprise's Delta navigator Ilea, as portrayed by Persis Kambata. Terrace Cassidy reminisces on what it was like to see the motion picture when it premiered in Canada. Joyce Stanfield joins in on the conversation about the return of DeForest Kelly in his role as Dr. McCoy. We discuss the Star Trek novels that were released in 1980. David Chang and Bill Victor Rukin give us the details on what it was like to create the motion picture era fan film, The Human Adventure. Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discuss Star Trek fandom in Los Angeles. And more on this episode of... Star Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey my little Georgia Peach. Hey Putin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. On each episode of Starpod Trek, we open up two issues of Starlog Magazine and discuss the Star Trek and science-related articles. We also consider what it was like to be a Trekkie decades ago. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, make sure that you find our YouTube channel for bonus content and Star Trek episode reviews. Please join our Facebook group. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We're only a few months away from the grandest of them all, Dragon Con. The Trek track there is so amazing. What are you looking forward to the most as we prepare over the summer for this gigantic event? Oh, I think we got to get our costumes ready, and of course I'm looking forward to doing another panel. That's one of the fun things is the costuming there. It never ends. It's always exciting. So what costumes are we going to release this year? Hopefully if we get them done in time. The Vulcan Warriors from Amont Time. You always liked those, didn't you? Yeah, I do like those costumes. I always did, too. I remember seeing Amont Time as a kid, just, like, losing my mind, just saying, oh, my God, this is it. This is the episode where we get more Vulcans. I mean, when you were a kid, seeing any episode that was Vulcan or Romulan-centric, wasn't that the most exciting thing for you? Yes, I always loved the Vulcans and Romulans. It's going to take us some time, but we hope to get that done by Dragon Con, and always looking forward to the panels. We've said a hundred times before, Dragon Con Trek Track is a con within a con, and there's nothing else like it. We look forward to seeing so many of our listeners there. Starlog Magazine, issue number 37, cover date, August 1980. Welcome, this is Bob Turner. And Kelly Casto. And we are from 70s Trek and the Unofficial Trek podcast. And this week we are looking at the fan scene from issue 37 way back in August 1980. Kelly, I know you looked at the cover of this issue. Oh, yeah. Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. So exciting. Wasn't it? It was. And and to sit there and watch that movie for the first time, what an experience. Oh, beyond. um, It was, yeah, it was awesome. Great we should we should do a podcast episode. Anyway, I'm sure somebody else has. Somebody's got that. That's right. 
What else did we find in this issue? Uh, well, there's a bunch of little news tidbits and articles and, and, uh, one of them was Alfred Hit, Hit, Alfred Hitchcock dying. Oh, wow. So he died in his sleep of a heart attack, April 29th, 1980. Wow. Screen legend Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. I found a little blurb about Action Comics number one, right? That's the first yes. appearance of Superman. And it sold for, and, and I'm quoting the article here, quote, an astounding $6,000, <laughs> unquote. I, I found that really funny because just last month in January 2022, or two months ago, that same issue of Action Comics sold at auction for $3.1 million. So I'm guessing the comic book mark quite wasn't, wasn't really mature yet in 1980. Well, I mean, six thousand back then. How how many years ago was that? That's 42? a lot of inflation to go from six thousand to three point one million. Yeah, well, it's in demand. <laughs> what else did you find in here? Well, there was, of course, several articles, uh, other articles, but one one other one was uh, that caught my eye was Ben Bova and um, Harlan Ellison. Winning a lawsuit for ABC using wanting to, or they used, um, a sci-fi story of theirs. Ooh. And didn't credit them, didn't pay them. Well, they, they, they went as far as even turning them down because Ellison didn't want an android. It was a robot. And so they passed on the story, but then went ahead and made it the way they wanted. Oh, geez. So, so I thought that was interesting. Uh huh. That is interesting. Wow. There's some cool interviews in here too with Harrison Ford and Persis Kambata from the motion yes. picture. Um, and, and even an article about the, the miniatures, the models in the movie Battle Beyond, Battle Beyond the, Stars. the Stars. Yes. Do you remember that movie? Do you remember I, who was in it? Who was, who was in it? Richard Thomas, who played John Boy in The oh, Waltons. Oh, that's right. That's yes. right. And that was, it was kind of this, um, really, it was a Star Wars knockoff, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Very cheap version. But the one really brought a smile to my face beyond Action Comics number one. There's a short piece in here about John Carpenter's next movie, and it was Escape from New York. Oh, my gosh. What a classic, right? Oh, Yes. Good, good movie. I could watch that anytime. Me too. But we're really supposed to be here talking about <laughs> the fan scene by writer and mega Star Trek fan, B. Joe Tremble. Yes. Why don't you start us off? Well, so B. Joe is describing the fandom in Los Angeles. And she, she really, she begins and she's very colorful and, <laughs> and descriptive. Um, talking about, you know, oh, everybody wants to come to Southern California. It looks great. We've got the, this rose parade. It, everybody looks, um, you know, comfortable in their shorts and, you know, whatever clothes they're marching in the band. And if you look really close, everybody's got goosebumps because it's cold. <laughs> uh, but she goes, you know, 
everybody wants to come here and even more so now that it's, you know, I think this was probably written March or April time frame of 1980, I'm mm-hmm. guessing. Um, so everybody wants to come to Southern California to try and get into, um, the Star Trek set to see the bridge and, and things like that. And she's basically saying, don't do that. It, you're not going to get in. Yeah. She, she almost came off as lecturing because, you know, you could say that, Hey, you're not going to get into the offices. You're not going to see the bridge. So don't expect to, you could do that in two or three sentences. She spent two or three paragraphs, not short paragraphs, not short paragraphs. She is going on and on. It, it kind of made me think that this was, this was stipping, uh, sticking in the crawl of her, of her throat, right? She's been dealing with fans calling her and wanting to get on the sets for years. Yes. And she just needed to get it off her chest. Yeah. Yeah. And you can tell. And, but just like anybody that says no to somebody, you should always give alternatives. And she does talk uh, a lot about alternative things you can do when you're in Southern California. Um, she did. And some pretty interesting things I thought too. Yeah. Yeah. The, so one of them was, the world's oldest sci-fi club, the LA uh, Science Fantasy Society or LASFS. And, you know, describes it as including members uh, like Ray Bradbury, Robert Heinlein, Larry Nevin, Niven, Jerry Purnell. Um, as, you know, then there's artists. It's not just writers. Uh, and, you know, they have, this club has a house. You can actually attend a meeting. And now she describes the meetings as being pretty chaotic. Uh, and, you know, not, not basically taking the meeting seriously. As, right. It was almost like a primer. Now you're going to come to this. It, it might get a little nuts. It's not real organized. That's <laughs> kind of the take I had from that. Yes. Yep. And she does, says that the LASFS does have a yearly convention. You come down for that, but be warned. It's mainly a convention about sci-fi and the written word, not, you know, media like movies and things like that. Think about that though, right here. We are 1980 and, and these kinds of clubs had been going on for quite some time up to this. This is how people were getting together and sharing ideas before the internet, before right. social media. Yeah. Even be, before email. Yes. Yeah. I, I found it fascinating too that she said, Hey, you might even go to the back room and see how we put together our fanzine. Yes. It might be laying back there, you know, being collated. I'm like reading that going, wow. <laughs> wow. This really is pre digital age. You know, you forget, right? Tell me if, if you agree with me because we lived through this transition. You forget sometimes how primitive it was in terms of uh, the sharing of media and the sharing of ideas. And, you know, we we get so used to what we have today. And it's instantaneous sharing, not I write a letter and two weeks later I get a reply. Right. Even what we're doing right now. Oh, yes. It was unheard of for somebody to have, you know, a, a show where we could 
near professionally produce it and share it. And it sounds great. Yeah. Well, near professional for most people. Near. Yeah. I, I wanted to put that in, <laughs> in quotes because anyway. Anyways. Yes. Uh, so she also brings up the South Bay Trekkies, uh, Star Trek Association of Irvine. She even talks about Jedi Knight, which is a obviously a Star Wars club. Mm-hmm. Logan Logan's Run fans love Logan's Run. Mm-hmm. Who's in Logan's Run, by the way? <laughs> Who's <laughs> that? Would be one. Farrah Fawcett. I, I, for, I thought you forgot her name. No, I was just pausing for emphasis <laughs> because Farrah deserves emphasis. She does. She, she does. does. And what beautiful hair she has. Incredible. Um, there's the Tolkien Fellowship. And she, I, I thought this was funny. She called, um, as a broad group, the inevitable D&D players. <laughs> 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 that's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. I was, uh, again, going back to the primitive technology. I'm using primitive as if, you know, we were in, <laughs> we, in we bear, sk- bear skins and, and using stone tools. But she says at one point, you know, we're going to have this convention. And it'll be over Christmas. And if you want to learn more about it, write the society. Here's the address. She gives the yeah. address, right? Yeah. And you're looking at that going, God, that's right. That's the kind of stuff we used to have to do. Oh, yeah. Yes. But, you know, now you don't want to share addresses of your club or whatever. You're afraid. You're, that's right. Yeah. You're afraid some crazy person's going to show up. Exactly. And I'm sure they had crazy people show up. I'm sure they probably did. I like that in the, in the beginning, she's going on about visitors contacting her and wanting to do things. And you can, yeah. again, see she's a little annoyed. At one point, she calls her home. Grand Central Trimble. Yes. <laughs> yes. That really should have been the name of the article. And she would prefer that you write. And if you're going to come and you want me to help you with anything or see me, please give me a detailed itinerary of your plans. And then I'll let you know if I'm available. Well, yes, because it sounds like people showed up at her door. It does sound like that. Doesn't it? It does. And just expected her to drop everything and escort them around Los Angeles. Yeah. It really sounds like she had that experience once or twice. And then of course their whole desire was let's go see the sets at Star Trek. Right. Well, and you know, come on, you think that she might have the end to get you in to see the set. Really you think she, she might, but you're right. She didn't. Not not that much weight anyway. No. Interesting article. You can see there's some some tension coming out there. She's working that out yes. through, her, through her writing and through her typewriter. But you can see it was a different time. Very much. Of, uh, like we talked about. And she sounds like she was getting bombarded by fans to, you know, meet and... Go, go get on the set. And I'm sure it only ramped up and got worse as the motion picture and then Wrath of Khan and the rest of the movie, movies in the 80s are released. I'm sure more and more people just, hey, you know, that B. Joe Trimble's in L.A. Let's contact her. Yeah. Well, e- even Bob and Kelly contacted her to, for 70s Trek. We did. And boy, was she nice. She was. And her husband. 
he was very, they were both very gracious and took some time to talk with us. Yes, they did. But at least we didn't show up at their door. No, we didn't. (laughs) The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, Star Trek speaks to some basic human needs, that there is a tomorrow, that it is not all going to be over in a big flash and a bomb, that the human race is improving, that we have things to be proud of as humans. Starpod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. And on our ongoing mission to collect experience of what it was like to see the motion picture when it first came out, we'd like to welcome to the show... Terrace Cassidy from Geek Nation Tours. And where'd you grow up? I uh, grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. This is great. We're getting a Canadian perspective of watching the motion picture. Give us an idea of what life was like for you being a Star Trek fan and, and how you trekked yourself before you saw the motion picture. Yeah, I've, I, saw it, I saw it at a theater, uh, one of a beautiful old theater in downtown Edmonton. And I just, I, I did love the motion picture. I thought the movie was excellent. It really, back then, science fiction was way slower than it, than it was, is now. And so it, it's always got a nice place in my heart. But I think I was just excited to see the crew back together again after so long, uh, uh, after the uh, original series. I used to grow up with my family. Uh, when I grew up with my family, we used to watch the original series almost every night and then watch the news after it uh, right at dinner time. So uh, going to the movie itself was was an amazingly emotional experience because they were back together again on another adventure. You were familiar with the original series as a kid. Did you were you into it to the point where you were reading comic books, playing with toys? Were you that immersive or was it strictly the show with your family? I think it was more the show with my family. I did pick up a couple Star Trek comic books, but uh, not that they weren't good or anything like that. I just remember it being part of our family experience more than more than diving deep. I did go back, go to a Star Trek convention back in the day. I don't even know when it was. It must have been in the late 70s or early 80s with my brother. That was the, kind of the extent of it. We, we did love Star Trek. Uh, I don't know if there was any more interaction than that but it was definitely a family affair now why was it a family affair was it something that your parents encouraged or did you drag them into it oh no i think they uh, my family comes from a history of frontiersmen they're they're farmers and uh, they broke the land they went to the frontier of canada and uh, so a long history of being that type of uh, family and then uh, Star Trek just fell right into our lap, and so everybody in my family loved it. As a matter of fact, when Next Generation came out, came out uh, I watched. Well, I was in university then. I was watching university with my girlfriend, now my wife, and, a, and my cousin downstairs, and my parents were watching uh, it upstairs. So what was the experience like seeing the motion picture? Do you remember what the crowd response was? Do you remember what, what the, the fervor was behind it? What was your recollection about actually being there? Yeah, you first saw the crew together, or when you saw the ship for the first time with the advanced special effects back in the day, uh, it was uh, spontaneous applause from the from the crowd. So yeah, it was 
It was. Uh, uh, I was not the only one that was feeling emotional about the uh, experience for sure. Did you feel that at the time, like as a young kid, it, it didn't resonate me as a child because I thought it was too slow. I appreciate it more when I was a teenager. What was your viewpoint? No, I think that the the speed was very in, in evocative of the old movies, like 2001, that kind of thing. So I, I, I think we were more used to the speed, that, that slowness, and uh, the visual effects. We just wanted to see what it was like to be in space. So I don't think, I don't know if we actually even thought it was slow in a way. I mean, I didn't. Yeah, I, we thought it was just, that's the pace of science fiction. Like when you think about 2001, Space Odyssey, it's also got that slow, slowness and, or Blade Runner, for instance, when they're going through, uh, the city and it takes a long time to go through the city. And that's how science fiction was back then. I think my opinion. Give us an idea of what being a Star Trek fan in Western Canada was like. Would you say it was different than what you've heard American fans have expressed? No, Star Trek fans, I think, have a common bond of just wanting to see a, a beautiful future and and to work together and to solve problems together and to solve problems with logic, but also with a little bit of passion also. So I think that's kind of universal, actually. And uh, no, I think you know, uh, Star Trek fans are pretty pretty universal. Back then, though, you had to hide the fact that you were uh, that you were a geek or a nerd. I mean, uh, you, you might get beat up uh, if you were, if you were if you were if you have shown your flag. Now it's liberating; you can show our flags wherever you want. So I'm not Star Trek. I think all my friends watch Star Trek, even if they're jocks or whatever. But uh, per, perhaps that's even better that Star Trek kind of helped get rid of that whole stigma of being a geek. So how did not only Star Trek, the original series, the motion picture, but the entire Star Trek phenomena, how did that affect your life going forward? Wow. Um, well, that whole thing about being a part of the, uh, a bright future, um, I think we train our brains, and we can train our brains to be depressed, or we can train our brains to be negative, I guess, not depressed. That's a different thing altogether. But negative, we can train our brains to be negative, or we can train our brains to be positive. And I think Star Trek helped me train my brain to be positive about the humanity and the future. That's so fantastic, and and that's the overwhelming response we find out when we meet other Star Trek friends. Now you've taken it a step further to be able to make a business helping other Trekkies appreciate chores and sights more easily. Can you give us some insight on that? Sure. Uh, what we do is we create geek tours all around the world. So we do everything from uh, a Lord of the Rings tour in, in New Zealand to uh, Harry Potter stuff in the UK. So And battlefield tours to Japan or anime tours to Japan. But we, we also have created, Larry and I have created a Star Trek tour to Star Trek filming sites in LA and San Francisco. And this one's really special. Uh, we, it's, it's evolved itself into uh, what we have now. And we have, hopefully, we have a, a Star Trek celebrity with us every day. And a small amount of uh, tours, uh, uh, tour participants, 18 max, so it's going to be really intimate. So each day will be an experience with a celebrity. So, for instance, our first day, uh, might as well just go for the first day, our welcome dinner happens, and then we go up to the uh, observatory, uh, Griffiths Observatory, because it's a filming site, and Tim Russ Tuvok comes up there with us, 
and brings his uh, telescope. And he's an amateur uh, astronomer, and we get to look at the stars with Tuvok for the night. So that's the kind of stuff that we have every day all the way through the tour. Excellent. Give our listeners an idea of how they can find out more about this awesome plan. <laughs> Thank you. You can take a look at the site at www.geeknationtours.com or email me at headgeek at geeknationtours.com. All right, we're going to put that link in our show notes and make it easy for our listeners to just click on it. Thanks again for joining us. This is the USS Enterprise calling all Trekkies and people of the Earth Living Unit of Chicago. The crew of the Starship Enterprise invites you aboard as we explore the adventures of deep space on Star Trek, television's classic outer space adventure on Channel 32. Hi, my name is Tom, and I live in Chicago, and I will be reading through an interview with Star Trek's Delta Navigator, Percy Kambata, written by Karen E. Wilson. I love science fiction. I think it's fantastic because I believe in outer space and reincarnation and things that happen outside our world. How can we think there's nothing else but us out in space, actress Percy Kambata explains, warming to one of her favorite subjects? Because we don't know for sure, we think nothing outside of us can exist. How dare we think that? We're really quite ignorant about aliens and UFOs. Aliens are not as threatening as everybody seems to believe, and not as ugly as everybody wants them to be. Filmmakers seem to think they're ugly and will be our enemies, but I don't feel that way. Independent, outspoken, and energetic, Percy Scambada seems to be the exact opposite of the soft-spoken, sensual Delton she portrayed in Star Trek, the motion picture. When describing herself, she is quick to explain that she is a survivor. I'm an adventurer. I'm ambitious because I know I have talent and I know I'm going to make it. This independent spirit helped Kambada build a career in modeling in the modeling industry when she was 13 years old and began acting in London when she was 16. When the part of Lieutenant Ilea was announced in Hollywood, Kambada was determined to get it. I was told that the girl Ilea was supposed to be bald, so I went and bought a bald cap from a drugstore for a dollar. Kambada chuckles. Remembering the incident, walked in to see Gene Roddenberry, and I was wearing this cap. I wasn't even wearing it perfectly, just enough so he could have an idea of how I would look without hair. I said to him, Look, I'm sure you're going to test girls for this part. Would you give me a chance? I'm good in front of a camera. But if I have to do a cold reading, a lot of actors can just take a script and start reading and acting immediately. I feel more confident having a screen test done, because then I'm more prepared for it, Kambada confides. Also, the director can see how I look, because my personality changes a lot on camera. Gene did give me a screen test. I felt very excited when I was told that, of all the girls, I was the one who got it. I always loved Star Trek. I watched it in London and thought it was a fantastic show. It had a lot of class. But I'll tell you, Kambada continues, I was even more pleased when they decided to make it into a feature film instead of a TV series. I prefer to make movies. Uh, just an aside there, uh, that is true. Originally, uh, the plan was to bring Star Trek back as a television series, and this went through a number of iterations, but um, I think that it was influenced by the success of Star Wars and some other science fiction movies, 
and they decided that Star Trek would return as a feature film. India's movies, movie scene, Kambada's bias against the television industries under, is understandable. In her native country of India, TV is practically non-existent, whereas the feature film industry is one of the largest businesses. India makes something like 700 feature films a year, Kambada says. Not all of them are even completed. The acting industry is also a very, very different here. In India, there are so few actors, perhaps 20, but in America, you have 25,000 actors. So there's quite a difference. Let me give you an example. After a major motion picture like Star Trek was released, a producer would just sign you because you were working in uh, a big major movie. You're continuously working. You get 20 offers and be expected to work on all 20 films at one time. I know actors in India who have worked on 80 films that were never completed. Working in the American film industry was a gratifying experience for Kambada. A great deal of time, energy, and personal sacrifice are demanded of an actress in a starring role, but few films require an actress to drastically alter her physical appearance. To portray Ilea, Kambada had to shave her head, an experience she will never forget. Believe it or not, it was a very positive experience, Kambada begins. That's not a joke. I'm a model. Looks are important in my profession. But I wanted to offer more than that. When I was asked to shave my hair, my ego made me feel I wanted people to know me for what I am and what I can give them myself, not what my looks are. I said, I'm going to do it, and people are going to like me for what I am. The hairdresser covered all the mirrors in the makeup room because I didn't want to see my hair being shave, shaven, Kambada continues. Jean and Majo Roddenberry were saying, We'll understand if you want to cry, because they were crying, and feeling quite bad. I felt nervous about what was happening when they started crying. Once my hair was shaved off, everybody's mouth was hanging open, and I became even more nervous, so I asked them to uncover the mirror. When I saw my head... I really liked it. I felt fantastic. For Kambana, the first day on, Star on the Star Trek set was a trying moment. The majority of the cast knew each other like a family, but Kambana and Stephen Collins were newcomers to the Trek universe. I was so nervous. I couldn't even remember my lines, Kambana admits. I had to create a character, and I wasn't sure what a Delton was exactly. On the second day of shooting, I realized that I had to talk to Gene. I said... Gene, you have to tell me what a Delton is like. So he gave me four pages of synopsis, which I think he gave to all the actors, even Leonard Nimoy. I read about the character, and I really liked her. In some ways, she was similar to Percy's. She comes from a more spiritual world, beyond the material world, where people count, and where you read people's minds through the senses. It was something I felt very close to, Unfortunately, the script didn't give me ways to express those things in the film. I wish it had been an Ilea film, but some of those ideas must have gotten through because so many people have commented on the sensuality that Ilea had, even though I couldn't, it couldn't be expressed after she becomes a probe. One can't express a probe being sensual, Kambada laughs, recalling the difficulties she encountered in portraying a machine. The woman's basic expressions are in the eyes and mouth. 
and I think I tried to show this in the scenes with Stephen Collins. You see, I'm very much like a Delton in some ways. Ilya is into people and into the beauty of everything, Kambada explained softly. She understood the human problem and that men were attracted sexually to her, but were also frightened because if she made love into a made love to a human being, they would become her slave because Delton love goes far beyond any imagination of the human concept of love. I wasn't able to express that in the movie, but I think Ilya was someone who really cared for people like Stephen Collins and enjoyed the beauty of what was happening in the universe. A great deal of story development in the Star Trek movie was left on the cutting room floor, but Kambada feels that several scenes will reappear when the movie is edited again for re-release. There are a couple of scenes I think they that will show when it goes on television, because the special effects lengthened everything so much. Not everything they shot was used, she explains. Some of my scenes got cut out, but then again some of Nimoy's scenes got cut out too. That happened to all of us, but that happens in every film. I'm very grateful to Robert Wise. He did a wonderful job. For Kambada, one of the highlights of Trek was the chance to work with director Wise. I learned to trust him, she comments. He understood that I was a newcomer and that the role I had wasn't easy. Portraying a probe was a difficult part for me. I couldn't blink. And that jewel in my neck burned me. They had to put a switch up my arm so I could turn it off. I would try not to switch it off until the lines were completed because I didn't want to spoil a good scene. Robert Wise was so patient. If the light in the jewel didn't work, he would have to wait for three or four hours to reshoot the scene. It was a delicate little device, you know, Kambada confides. I adore Gene Roddenberry and Robert Wise. One talks about their producers and director and tries to say nice things, but I really do believe that they are wonderful human beings. Dangerous work. Working with special effects was a new experience for Kambada. Sometimes it was challenging, other times she found it downright dangerous. On the last scene in the movie, I almost went blind for two days. It was a short scene, but we had to turn in profile, and Robert Wise wanted us to keep our eyes open as we turned into those xenon lights which were two feet away from us. Those lights are incredibly strong, Kambada explains. So that incredibly bright light was not a special effect. They were so hot, we had to keep a huge fan running, or we would have burned. It took us two days to film that scene. Exhausted after filming that afternoon, Kambada went home to sleep. When she woke up, she discovered she was blind. I could only see black when I opened my eyes. I was so scared. I had my neighbors call the production company and they rushed me to a hospital. The doctors said my retinas were burned, and they bandaged my eyes. For two days, I couldn't open or move my eyes. I loved shooting that scene, and it was worth it, but the aftermath was scary. I kept getting headaches for a couple of months, and if I went into the sun, I had to wear dark glasses. But I'm all right now. Kambada is concerned with the importance placed on special effects in science fiction films. I think everyone expects too much special effects, but I do enjoy working in the science fiction genre. I've seen Close Encounters as well as Star Wars, and I must say that I liked Encounters very much. 
I didn't especially care for Star Wars because people had such wild expectations of it and so many stories were told to me about it that when I went to see the film, I was disappointed. In a sense, Star Trek and Close Encounters of the Third Kind had stories with more meaning. Kambada was pleased with the Star Trek movie. The reaction of fans all over the world tickled the Indian actress. At the premiere, when I saw my name filling the screen, I was thrilled. I had to see it again afterwards, she says. So after, a pre- after the premiere, she went, I went to the first evening showing at the Chinese theater when the doors opened. There was such a rush. Everyone screaming and shouting. When Captain Kirk came on and Kelly and Nimoy, everyone was screaming and shouting, leaping from their seats. It was incredible. Kambada is also amazed at the amount of fan mail she received from Star Trek enthusiasts all over the world. I've been getting tremendous letters, and basically everybody wants a picture of me in a bikini, Kambada laughs. There have been some very interesting fan letters. Some people write to tell me their life story, and I read them. It's a nice feeling when somebody says, hey, I really enjoyed your work. One of the most common questions Kambada is asked is whether she will shave her head for another movie. I don't want to be typecast as a Yul Brynner or Telly Savalas type, is her answer. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. There is one privilege the movie has given me. People don't recognize me with hair. I also have no idea whether they'll be recreating Ilya again. I've heard a rumor that there might be a sequel, but I haven't been approached. Uh, just as an aside, I have to have to say that I I kind of share some of her feelings about the shaved head. When I was a kid, I tried cutting my own hair, and uh, I kind of um, made a mess of it. So, of course, it all had to be cut off. And so for a period of, like, maybe about a month or so, I had to endure the treatment, uh, putting it mildly, of other children to my bald head. After that experience, I had a whole new perspective on being different and physical appearance and definitely, definitely not making fun of anybody for their personal appearance. So when this movie came out, having that experience behind me, I was just flabbergasted with um, Ilya's appearance. And I didn't think there was anything about her being bald that was strange or unusual at all. She's a beautiful woman. And that came through with or without hair. So um, that, that's my own little little side story here. Kambana sums up her work on Star Trek The Motion Picture with a sigh. It was an experience living here in Hollywood. I find that I've changed as a person. I have to be more selfish, unfortunately. You have to think of yourself. You have to be tough. But I love acting and I love my profession. I'd also like to thank the readers of Starlog for their interest. I hope they'll see my next movie. And that's the end of the interview. Fast forward to uh, the present. What I'd like to, I guess, add is that um, Persis Kambata, after Star Trek, would go on to perform in a number of movies and television shows through the 80s and the 90s before tragically passing away in August of 1998, age of 49. A sad ending. I I only heard about this uh, myself maybe a couple of years ago when I was just kind of checking on, you know, what people were doing and stuff like that. But I did enjoy her work in, in Star Trek, the motion picture, which 
was a very high-minded Star Trek production, perhaps still the most high-minded, I think. It really felt like a Star Trek version of 2001 Space Odyssey. The Star Trek novels that were produced in the year 1980. Now, you got to remember the year before, we did get the novelization of the motion picture written by Gene Roddenberry. And in fact, we're going to cover a review of that you and your friend Jen, the Trek ladies, have discussed in the past. So that would be for a future episode of Starpod Trek. But looking forward, you'd think that there were a ton of tie-ins at this point. People were hungry for more Trek, so there had to be more stories, right? Yeah, it, w- it was great to have more stories. I mean, but because the, the by this time, everybody had seen the episodes on TV a hundred times. And of course, we still loved them, but it was great to see something new. What blows my mind is before the year 1979, there were numerous novels that were set just before the motion picture. So we could say the original series era. And there were, all the covers reflected them wearing the original series uniforms. But for the year 1980, only two novels were released. Perry's Planet by Jack Haldeman and The Galactic Whirlpool by David Gerald. And those were very um, ho-hum books to me. Um, and, and, and the thing is, they were both by well-known authors. Um, Jack Haldeman, I believe, had done some other sci-fi books. And he also had a brother named Joe Haldeman. So they were both sci-fi writers. So so this was during a time when they would recruit sci-fi writers to write Star Trek books, and some of these writers didn't really know much about Star Trek. What surprised me, though, is just after the movie for an entire year, really, Star Trek fans only got two books, it wouldn't be until 1981 where the pocket books picked up the license and really started churning out these, what we call the numbered books. And after a while, there were so many books that, that it became harder to keep up with them. And also, I remember The Galactic Whirlpool, which, you know, uh, that one, I think it is a more popular book, but for some reason, it just didn't quite do it for me. I only read it once, way back when it first came out. And I loved David Gerald, and some of his other, some of his other non-Star Trek books I actually liked. And this one, I just thought, well, it was okay, but, you know, hoping for something better in the books later on. Explore the astronaut's world. See and touch the story of man's adventure into space. At the Alabama Space and Rocket Center, there's a whole universe to explore. Meet the first astronaut, fire a rocket engine, control a spacecraft, take a journey to the moon from the G-forces of a rocket liftoff to the freedom of weightlessness. It's all a part of the ever-changing Alabama Space and Rocket Center, Earth's largest space museum, Huntsville, Alabama. Starlog Magazine, issue number 38, September 1980. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. This letter is from Gregory Cosimini from St. Paul, Minnesota. Have you ever wondered what Admiral Kirk will do when he leaves Starfleet? Will he be able to support himself on a Federation pension? Will he begin trading in tribbles? Or will he hop into a wormhole and return to Earth circa 1980 and set up a little shop in St. Paul, Minnesota? From the enclosed photo, I'm afraid it will be the latter. Okay, so the picture says Kirk Furniture Company, Admiral Television Appliances. Okay, so it's Admiral Kirk. He owns a furniture company that sells TVs and appliances. 
This is the type of thing now with the internet. It would be a meme or be on Facebook or Twitter, but this is the only way to communicate back in 1980. I mean, send in the picture, yeah. Log Entries, latest news from the world of science fiction and fact. Cosmos Spaceship Ready for Flight. A voyage that carries you past exploding galaxies and stellar nurseries, a flight past the rings of Saturn, through the clouds of Titan. Your tour guide is Dr. Carl Sagan, who will also discuss the red planet from the Martian surface itself. The 13-part Cosmos TV series begins its journey through space on September 28th on the public broadcasting service at 8 p.m. when viewers around the country board a spaceship of the imagination. What did you think about Carl Sagan's Cosmos series when you were a kid? I loved it. I watched it every week. The The visuals were, were so fantastic on that. I mean, they, they showed, you know, what looked like outer space and like you were traveling through space and and seeing all the stars and planets, it was, it was really cool. I loved it. And this was a time, I know we've discussed it many times before on this podcast. When we were growing up, Star Trek was linked to real-world science, real-world space. Like, we, you, you couldn't have one without the other. And I had an interest in the space program because of Star Trek. It, it was linked in my mind. It was to me too. I think it was because I watched Star Trek that I that I wanted to see Cosmos, and um, and it just turned out to be a really interesting show. And and plus, I I was in a science class in school that gave me extra credit for watching it. Uh, while I was watching it, I would just take notes. And when I got a page full of notes, I mean, you know, I I could have actually written more than a page, but all I needed was a page full and to turn it in and, and get extra credit. A candid conversation with a simple country doctor, DeForest Kelly. His fans in Europe call him Pill McCoy, or simply the doctor. In America, he's known as Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy, chief medical officer of the Starship USS Enterprise. For this segment, we're going to invite commentary from our special guest, Joyce Stanfield. Joyce, you've been a Star Trek fan for a long time. Tell us a little bit about your history with Star Trek. Well, the Star Trek premiere was September of 66. At that point, I was a sophomore at university in a traditionally black college where there was zero interest in Star Trek. So I went to the rec room, quasi-rec room. It was uh, really a basement. I mean, we're talking about an old school with very little. It was furnished with battered wicker chairs, and it was cold. But that was the only TV in the building. So I bundled up into my old wicker chair by myself and watched the premiere of Star Trek. All it took for me was to see Nichelle Nichols, but that's another story for another day. Um, when I went to the Dallas Con in 2016, I went to five cons. I'm old. I lose track. We went to Dallas, and I went to a Q&A with Jonathan Frakes, and they had cautioned us, be sure you ask questions that are relevant to the group, nothing personal. I thought, you know what? I'm the oldest person in the room. I'm going to do what I want. So I said to him, I said to him, I'll bet you get tired of being asked the same questions year in and year out. He said, you're right, I do. I said, okay, I'm going to break the rule. I'm not going to ask you a question. I'm just going to tell you my story. And I t told him about my watching the premiere by myself in an old blanket. And I was in college. And I looked at him, and I could see 
him doing the math in his head. <laughs> she was a college sophomore. This is the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. He looked at me. He said, hmm, black don't crack, does it? <laughs> and I rolled. Well, I could see his face change, almost like he regretted having said it. Well, he got it from LeVar Burton. I know he did. <laughs> and uh, so he saw me later in the vendor's room signing autographs. He said, you know, I... I said that to you. He said it just kind of rolled out of my mouth. I, my partner in crime, LeVar, over there said that to me. And I had said it before I realized it. I said, well, honey, it's true. <laughs> it's true. And thankfully, it's true. So he and I had a good few minutes. But after that, I, just, I always watched Star Trek. And I watched and I watched. And when it went off the air in 69, I kind of didn't know what to do with myself. It took 10 years for them to bring that motion picture. Mm -hmm. And I was first in line. It didn't matter to me what the critics had said about it. It was Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And it's got Star Trek on it, I'm in. If it involves Michelle Nichols, I'm in. 79 came. They advertised Star Trek. A lot of people had a lot to say about it. I didn't care. I went, I sat, and I was mesmerized. First, because it was Star Trek. But secondly, because the visuals in that movie are stunning. Mm -hmm. That roundabout they do... Of, of the ship with the music playing. It, that's now the TNG theme, right? Mm -hmm. I was blown away. So the, then the movie proceeded, and I watched the movie. It was a good movie. Uh, it didn't set my heart aflutter, but it was Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And with the stunning visuals, they were forgiven. Mm -hmm. The beautiful music, they were forgiven. If the plot, the script, whatever, didn't come up to certain people's standards. I'm not picky. If it's Trek, I love it. It's interesting, in this interview with DeForest Kelly, he talks about how much he loved working on Star Trek. And when we saw, especially the big three, the Trinity, come together in Star Trek The Motion Picture, don't you think that was one of the most exciting scenes, seeing the gang back together again? It was for me, because it, it was home to me. And when I saw them all on the bridge, I thought, okay, this will work. But as I said, the music and the visuals were so stunning. They could have had... Mickey Mouse, and I would have enjoyed it. So I'm not so well-versed in screenwriting. I know what I like. Uh, it was an okay movie. Two and three were astounding. Four was hilarious and so funny. Five, well, yeah, it was a movie. Six was very good. Mm -hmm. So I'm in line with Stephen Shives when I, when I tell you that. But um, when all the brouhaha started about Star Trek 2009, I'm thinking, what is wrong with these people? It's Star Trek. What the heck? I'm in. And I did enjoy it. So, what did you think about seeing Kirk, Spock, and Bones coming together in the motion picture? I loved seeing them together again, and that the way they kept the chemistry, um, the way that you know Spock and McCoy still had their their little what do you call it the brawls, the little <laughs> the little banter. You know, they had Spock was more in turmoil in this movie. That showed through, but the way but the way McCoy could still say. So, you know, just uh, bring him out. And, and, and even Kirk getting involved, Kirk saying, you know, like, Mr. Spock, will you please sit down? <laughs> Those little moments. It, it was fun to see them all together, and I was glad they had that, the dialogue between them and, and the, the scenes with, with the three of them together. It was, it was so much fun to see all that again. Now, what did you think about the look of Dr. McCoy when he came back with his disco gear on, with his big beard? They could have done without that. I mean, it, it didn't it didn't enhance in any way. Uh, I, no, they could have done without that. 
it, it was just funny when McCoy, so McCoy beat, when he first beamed to the Enterprise, and then he's like, he's got his hands on it, on his chest and everything, like, am I, am I here? Because he, <laughs> he still didn't trust the transporter. So what's funny, it's like, same old McCoy, right? That's, that's exactly right. And I would feel the same way, I think. I'd be feeling to see if everything arrived. Oh, yeah. uh, Lord Santa Troy does that too when she beams. <laughs> she hates it. So it's, uh, it was home, as I said, to see the three of them together. And I love the scene where there was just the three of them in the captain's quarters uh, reacting together. It's funny because after Star Trek, the original series, DeForest Kelly said he was having a hard time getting acting parts that were not doctors. He was actually typecast as a doctor. Previous to that, he was doing heavies in westerns. So, big change of how he was perceived. The article goes on to say that by the second season, Star Trek had surpassed the monkeys with fan mail. The monkey TV show had more fan mail than anything else in the studio. So his character was planted firmly as Dr. McCoy was here to stay. What do you think about him as an actor reprising his role and taking on that role of Dr. McCoy. Do you think that they did a good job with the transition of the crew was separated for all those years and now he's back as a doctor on the Enterprise? It's like your college pals that you don't see for 20 years. And when you do see them, it's like the time has not happened. Mm -hmm. And you pick up right where you left off. That's the feeling I, I was given as far as he was concerned, yes. Yeah, it felt good to see him again. And and I never really saw him in, in anything else after after Star Trek, the original series, right, besides the Star Trek movies. I mean, yeah, I did see old westerns that had him. Yeah, he said he kept turning down parts because he didn't want to be typecast as a doctor. But he was willing to come back as Dr. McCoy. So it shows a certain affinity that he had for the character. Yeah, it does. And it, well, they probably offered him a lot of money too, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, of course, they, it would have been hard to see the movie without Dr. McCoy. I mean, definitely, because he, he was part of it. He was a big part of it. Now, in this interview, DeForest Kelly reveals that there was a scene where he would go into Kirk's quarters and severely counsel him. And Bill Shatner, didn't want to practice the scene with him. And he was curious as to why Bill didn't want to practice it with him. And it was revealed that Bill went to Robert Wise and didn't want Dee to be counseling him heavily. It's one of those things that Bill's known for doing. <laughs> Bill, Bill is the captain and Bill wants to run the show. And DeForest said it's a shame because this was in line with Dr. McCoy. He's counseling, Shat uh, counseling Captain Kirk not out of chastisement, but out of care. That's one of the scenes that we could have gotten in the motion picture. What do you think about that, about Bill taking over a scene that could have been really heavy for Dr. McCoy? Shatner is who he is. <laughs> the premise, though, of, of the whole triumvirate, if you will, mm -hmm. was that Spock was logical, mm -hmm. Kirk made the decisions, and McCoy infused humanity or humor or, or something emotional mm -hmm. into it. And it gave Shatner a base to work from. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine why he would want to undo that triumvirate unless it's just ego. And he is who he is. It's probably ego. <laughs> yeah, McCoy gave Kirk advice before, and, and it seemed in character. They, I mean, they, they did leave a, a little bit in, right, when um, Decker was saying that he should have been the captain, and, mm -hmm. and then... Um, and then when McCoy said, he's, he's something like, he might be right, Jim. Yeah. And, and that, that was really all they left in the movie. 
But that that was also effective too, just doing it that mm-hmm. way with the one line, and um, and you could see Kirk's face like. He, he was kind of, he didn't want to be wrong, of course, and he was used to being the captain. And that this is, that's part of what the movie was about, was mm-hmm. Kirk taking command again after all these years. I thought Dr. McCoy said something to him about competing with Decker. You're the one who's competing. Yes. And he talked about obsessive behavior regarding being the captain of the Enterprise. So that, that was good they left that in, because he needed to hear that. I think he was competing with Decker. Yeah, and, and it's hard to um, accept that Decker's the one who, who should have been in charge. He's the one who knew the ship, as, as they as they proved in the movie. You know, it was something hard to deal with. Like like, and Kirk was dealing with not only losing the ship, but also but facing that he's getting older too. Because you could tell, like like Decker was this younger guy, and Kirk didn't want to admit that he was getting older, and maybe that that this wasn't his place anymore. But then, it, but then the movie, the way the movie turned it around, I mean, so Decker evolved with, with Ilea and then, and Kirk did wind up being back in command. Perhaps chastised in some way by the occurrences. But you know, I, I understand that mentality. I was assigned to work for a woman who was my daughter's age. I lasted one year. So I understand about, mm-hmm. about Kirk and, and working with someone younger. It's a, it's a tightrope to walk if you're that young person. And the person I worked for didn't walk very well, so. I made my presence, my exit, rather, rather than stay in the negative presence. Off screen, DeForest Kelly is known for being one of the kindest people in real life. He has a certain genuineness about him. Talks about one of his brightest moments in his career was he received a letter from a father whose 14-year-old boy was going through severe treatment in a hospital for an illness. And the boy's dying wish was that he could meet Dr. McCoy. So DeForest and his wife flew to Colorado and spent three days with this boy. And this really made an impact not only on the child but on the family. Shortly after, he got a phone call from the father saying the boy died, but he died happy knowing that he met Dr. McCoy. Just something like that. What does that tell us about to Forrest Kelly as an individual. I heard someone speaking about him in an interview. I don't even remember the who or the where or the when. But that person said that he was a real Southern gentleman. He had the old Southern charm about him, and that comes through. Yeah, it's, it's a great story, and and we do know that um, that DeForest Kelly was that way. He that that everybody loved him. He wasn't like someone who, you know, we have to say like William Shatner that some people didn't like. I mean. You know, DeForest Kelly was that had this warmth and uh, this feel about him. Everyone loved him, and and no one really had any problems with him. He was a great guy, and I and I saw him at cons too. I know he was a very friendly person. Now, at this time in 1980, there was no solid plans for a sequel, but DeForest said, "I'll keep my availability open. Who knows what's going to happen?" And we know what happened. I'll bet he did know. There had to be some rumbling, some underground talk. <laughs> Come on. That movie didn't spring into existence overnight. He probably had the inside track. Nice as he is and as well, nice as he was and as well-liked as he was, if there was anything going around, he'd have been privy to it, I think. So, hi, everyone. My name is Bill Victor Arucan. I am an avid Star Trek fan, and I'm here with David Chang, and we're going to talk about some of our films that we've done uh, over the past couple of years. Just briefly, I'm actually 
now a in the film industry as a producer, actor, writer. But I really got my first start with David because David really inspired me to be that actor and producer. We will learn a lot about the human adventure as we talk through it today. Um, but I met David back in Star Trek Las Vegas. What do you think, David, was 2014, 2015? You know, I seem to recall that I met you at the first one that I went to, which was actually still at the Hilton. Oh, my gosh. So I guess that was 2010, I think. Yeah, probably 2010. And, and I remember that you were dressed in a, a Mako uniform. And so that's my first, uh, actually my first time that I actually met you. But we just took a picture together. Um, you know, we didn't actually have proper introduction or anything at that time. But after that, then, um, you know, then we saw each other at uh, the conventions and got to, you know, know each other better and actually started doing cosplays together. And I think we took it to the next level each year. So we, we, we loved not only Star Trek, but we did a lot of cosplay, we even got to like group cosplaying and even to the point we were meeting on on what cosplays we were going to do to get into the costume contest. So we we really took it to the next level. That's right. <laughs> but our group cosplays still don't match the individual cosplays that you do every year. Those are yeah. always very amazing. A lot of prosthetics and you always, you always pick a an interesting character to cosplay that year. <laughs> I, I do like my aliens, right? <laughs> but I, I think we did a lot of cosplay with like crossovers. I think you you were the first one to get us started with a crossover with Star Trek and Star Wars. I, mean, I think we called it Trek Wars. Yeah, I don't remember how that came about, but I um, oh, I think it was uh, someone else who had a who was a crossover, and so that kind of spurred the idea of, of doing that. And but I we also we, had that. We also had that Mar that Marvel cross. No, oh, DC no, comic. DC comic crossover one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think the first one was the Trek Wars, and we actually got on stage. We made it to the finals, and we won the judges award, which was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. That was certain. That's certainly a highlight for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we have David introduce himself next? Yeah, well, I'm uh, David Chang, and I'm, as you probably can tell, I'm also a big Star Trek fan as well, and I've uh, been a fan ever, ever since the original series came out, actually, um, when I was a really young kid, and really enjoyed that, and I've just been amazed at how Star Trek has lasted all these years, and has gotten to the point where we have even so much new content being produced now. It's just hard to keep up now. <laughs> I think back then, too, uh, we, we were facing all those legal requirements that you couldn't have a, a Star Trek episode longer than 30 minutes. Oh, are you talking about um, the original series? or Oh, no. What are you talking about? So when we started filming our stuff. Okay, yeah. We're t okay, so yeah. we're moving on to fan films now then. You know, actually, the... The idea for the fan film that I had originally was before the Star Trek fan film guidelines came out. So my original idea was to do one that would be about 30 minutes long. And then the fan films guidelines came out and I saw, oh, you know, now we're restricted to 15 minutes. 
uh, maximum time. So I kind of ended up dropping the original idea and thinking about, started thinking about, well, what can I, what kind of good story could I shoot in 15 minutes or under? And that was the genesis for the idea of shooting a story around the meeting between uh, Admiral Kirk and Admiral Nagura that was mentioned briefly in Star Trek, the motion picture. And we had never seen uh, Nagura on screen. We didn't actually see the, the meeting between them on film. And so I thought it would be interesting to actually have a story in a film that uh, centered on that meeting and what it was about and how Kirk ended up convincing Nagura to give him command of the Enterprise. So in essence, then, you basically created a mini film that's really the first 15 minutes before Star Trek The Motion Picture. Well, it's it's not before it. You know, you had the Klingon battle and everything, of course, and then you had the return of Kirk to uh, Starfleet to uh, come back. Well, in his mind, he decided that he was going to get back the Enterprise and, you know, get the Enterprise to deal with uh, what turned out to be V'ger. So, it, but it would be would have been a like a missing lost footage type of a thing in the film if it had been, you know, done, you know, as part of the motion picture. So that was kind of, I guess, the idea was to show the story that you didn't really know exactly what happened, but it was just alluded to. And we started this venture. Actually, you invited me to the venture. I think way back in 2019. It was actually before then. Uh, I, I remember, I remember starting to come up with the story late 2017. And then we went through many iterations of the story and the script. And somewhere in between there, you had expressed an interest in being part of it. You know, then I decided to create the character of Admiral Phil Curry, uh, for use as sort of a, like a chief of staff or something to uh, Admiral Nagura and have you be part of the film in that way. And that was good because then you were able to be kind of a sounding board for Nagura and kind of, you know, keep him on the straight and narrow. (laughs) (laughs) I do appreciate that you let me pick the name Curry for my favorite basketball player, you know. Yeah. I do appreciate that. I think I was the one who came up with that, if I wasn't mistaken. No, no, I? you you asked me what you, you know. You can name it. And I said I'll I'll name it Curry, or if you, <laughs> if it was you, then I do appreciate that it was. Curry. Yeah, no, I think I came up with that name, but it was in recognition of you being a fan of the Golden State Warriors with uh, Stephen Curry as one of the star players. And I think we all you you started pulling people in to help you out too. Then so we brought in you brought in Mike and you brought mm-hmm. in Mark, right. Uh, Mark, uh, of course, was a good friend of mine and a good Trek friend as well. And because he had had experience in photography, I thought, well, you know, maybe he can translate those skills into filmmaking. So I asked him initially if he would be willing to film it. And later on, it turned out that he kind of ended up directing it as well. <laughs> I do remember ori- that. Ori- originally, he was just going to film it. And then the story of Mike was really interesting. I was trying to find someone who could play uh, an older Captain Kirk. There were a few people who kind of came to mind, but that I didn't think maybe were quite right or something, you know, uh, wouldn't work out. So I started going through my my friends list on Facebook, just kind of 
looking through and seeing if there was anyone that I thought maybe could play Kirk. And then I, I came across, you know, Mike Longo. And then I was looking at this picture, his profile picture, which I think was actually maybe a Star Wars picture. And I thought, you know, he, he could, maybe he could play Kirk, you know? <laughs> so I contacted him and he was like, without hesitation, you know, uh, willing to do it. And at that point, I didn't really know Mike very well. I had just met him at uh, a convention and I knew he was, you know, into Star Trek, but I didn't know that much about him. And the funny thing was, as I got to know him, uh, as we were working on this project, I, I found out that he had this pretty extensive film background already. You know, he had taken classes in college and he um, had actually worked in the film industry. And so it was a nice, pleasant surprise to have someone who had that kind of knowledge and experience that was able to come on board and to share that in addition to just portraying, you know, Captain or Admiral Kirk. He did a phenomenal job with, with the, the look, the way he talked, the mannerisms of Captain Kirk or Admiral Kirk. Fabulous. Yeah, that was a nice, pleasant surprise. And, uh, you know, the funny thing was that as a result of this film and people who watched it got exposed to him and his acting, there were people in the fan community who were really impressed with his portrayal of Kirk. And as a consequence, he was, you know, he's been asked to appear on in other fan filmmakers' films as either Captain or, or Admiral Kirk. Uh, and to do his portrayal of them because they were so impressed with with him uh, in that role. And that was a great find. And I think we also had a couple of additional folks in the film. It was Anna and Glenn. Right. How do we how do we get them? Well, Glenn was uh, a friend of Mike's. He thought that he would be good to play uh, the role of one of the professors in the film. Anna, someone I you know knew from the conventions and also lived locally and. I asked her if she'd be willing to play the role of the other professor. So we, it was fun when we had people uh, in the film that, except for Glenn, that I didn't know very well at that time. Although I think I had met him at um, a convention or two. But we were just basically, you know, working with our friends on a, a, a Star Trek. Oh, and we also had a couple, a few more people too, right? We had Desiree, who played a, our Starfleet officer. We had Max. Cervantes, who also played a Starfleet officer. And then I had a friend from my church named Lane Wakuda who wanted to be in the film. Although he's really more of a Star Wars fan. It didn't have any Star Trek costumes, so I just had him play, you know, kind of a civilian. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it all it all came together. I mean you did the planning. I know Vera helped out with with the food catering. Location scouting, you, you pick the sites. Uh, well, we should talk about some of that stuff. A lot of the film takes place at a uh, public garden in the city of Torrance. And it's a Japanese garden. And it was one that I was familiar with before. And I thought this would be a really nice place to film the, uh, to shoot the film and especially the, the parts where we, we had that, um, sword fight battle with, uh, Admiral Kirk. The funny thing about that was we went there without knowing whether actually we'd have, they would let us film, but because it was a, a public site and I know people would shoot photos and stuff there, I figured we could just go there and, and just start filming. And then if, 
you know, they didn't want us there, then they would tell us to leave, and then we'd have to find, you know, go somewhere yeah. else and film. So I had a few backup places uh, or a backup uh, location, but I really wanted to shoot there because I thought it was just a really good scenic location and kind of played into a little bit of the background that I imagined for Admiral Nagura, you know, uh, the Japanese culture and everything. So it turned out to be really good. You know, we went there and we shot and the staff saw us there and didn't have a problem with this shooting. So it all, it all worked out very well. I think we shot, was it, um, it was a full day. Cause I remember I flew in in the morning. Uh, we were at the church filming there. Then we drove yeah. over to, uh, the Japanese garden that we filmed there till night. And I think I flew out. We, we actually started the day shooting in the courtyard in my church. And we just kind of had that serve as a Starfleet courtyard. Um, and so we did that in the morning. And then we had lunch at my, my house with catering by, by, by my wife. And then after that, we went over to the garden and shot the, the rest of the film there. Um, so it was a full day. But we got the majority of the filming done in, in one day, which was important because you were down here only for one day, and yeah. we we needed to really get that done. I was uh, impressed that it ran so smoothly, given that we've never filmed before, and it was kind of like our first attempt at everything. Right. You know, knowing that we were under time pressure, I kept trying to kind of hurry everything up and <laughs> try yeah. to get stuff done, but... Um, and I know toward the end, you know, toward like mid to late afternoon, we were kind of rushing it a bit. We couldn't get as much coverage on the shoots as I would have liked in retrospect, but, but we were trying to get it all done and, you know, we needed to, to finish it. So we, we filmed what we could. And uh, actually the following week, Mike and I did go back there for a few hours to shoot some pickup. We did a little bit of pickup there and that helped. Oh, and also at the church too, the courtyard. So that did help to fill in some areas that we thought needed, uh, some additional footage. But all in all, uh, it was just basically, you know, one day and then a few hours, uh, another day. And that was all the, the principal filming that we did. I think it was my first time to actually have to start to memorize lines. <laughs> and then I, I think even though we did a couple of, uh, Zoom meetings to kind of go over a table rehearsal, it was so, it was so different when, when the camera is turned on and then you have to act as that character. You know, I remember we did do a Zoom meeting once, but I thought, I think that was for a different film. I don't think we did any for, if I'm, from what I recall. Unless... We did a, I do recall we did a walkthrough because I, I remember mm-hmm. printing it. And we went through some of the, some of the lines. Mm. And I think it was the one where I'm, I'm walking down the staircase. Uh huh. And, and I meet you at the bottom of the staircase and tell you the situation. Yeah. And what's going on. I think we rehearsed that piece. Mm-hmm. Well, how, how was it, how was it for you doing your first acting experience in a fan film? Oh, I was horrible. I think this, <laughs> I was terrible as Admiral Curry. Uh, you know, my, my, my eyesight line was not, not right. I, I had to have someone hold my lines for me so I can, re- you know, read them through. But I've come out such a long way since the first one. But I must say though, you did inspire me to keep picking this up and look at other films to do. And that's where I, you got me to 
into the Hollywood push, basically, to do <laughs> other fan films and real, real other films. Yeah. So I'm to blame for this, I guess. You're the blame, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Much appreciated. <laughs> but I, I, I really do, when I look back and I watch it every single time now, the human adventure, it's kind of cool. I'm like, oh my gosh, we created a piece of Star Trek lore and we kept building on it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think it's the, it was the perfect one to start. I mean, you took a bit, uh, you took 15 minutes that somehow plugged into the whole movie. And it, 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 like you said, it does show how Kirk got back his ship. It was, you know, through Nagura that mm-hmm. he, he got the, you know, convinced to give him back the ship. And I thought that was, that was a great story. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I thought it would be an, it would make for an interesting story, but we had to do it right too. I didn't want to do a film where we just showed the two of them in Nagura's office, just trying, you know, arguing with each other or hashing it out because yeah. that would have been kind of boring. So that was uh, another reason why I wanted to do it outdoors in the garden and have it all kind of interspersed with a a little friendly sword fight between the two of them, <laughs> which was great. And I like the little Easter egg where we actually have our school rivalry represented in the film, Stanford oh, yes. versus Cal. I think that was excellent. <laughs> well done. Yeah, that was, you know, that was, uh, you know, of course, because of you and me going to different schools. So it was kind of fun to, to just make that part of the film. Another thing that was kind of fun to incorporate as part of the film is when I, as Nagura, tell um as a test tell admiral kirk to snatch the coin from my hand yeah. and when we show it, it it's a it's one of the uh the coins from the star one of the star trek conventions yeah. <laughs> you gave me the uh the hobby of the coin collector as admiral curry's <laughs> thing yeah so yeah that was a lot of fun a lot of good memories from uh shooting that first film and, and yeah. you know i didn't at the time we did it I was just thinking about this this was just going to be the only film that I was going to do. I just thought it'd be kind of fun to do a film. And then but we had so much fun on it. I I decided, "Oh, let's let's do it again." Let's do it again. Uh, oh, yeah. before we talk about the other stuff, let's talk about uh how do we do with costumes and props? Well, I know you already had a costume, a shirt, yeah. but we but Mike and I didn't already have a Star Trek the motion picture outfits so i had i actually ordered a an admiral one for himself and for him and one for myself max who used to work on one of the star trek films yeah, yeah he brought had, his props yeah yeah he brought actually actually brought um i think a wrist communicator or something yeah which i i think he wore i don't remember if he wore that or not but he also brought something that was like that looked like a tablet or a binder right i remember that actually actually from there um, and I know, uh, Desiree also, she already had the gray, uh, motion picture uniform. So she was actually recommended to me by someone else who knew her because she had that uniform. But I, I also knew her already separately, but yeah. I hadn't thought of that until, I don't think until that person mentioned, mentioned her. And I think she actually wore it to the Star Trek Las Vegas convention either the prior year. Or that same year. Yeah, I remember she had worn it. I think I did remember seeing her wear it before. So that worked out well. Mm-hmm. That uh, she had one already, and Max already had like a shirt 
And then, uh, because, and then Lane, because he was a civilian, he just came up with something that looked kind of futuristic. Uh, but of course wasn't Star Trek. Yeah. But it worked so, well. Yeah. So that's how we took care of the costumes. Uh, the, that was kind of the only expense really that I had was just, uh, purchasing the costumes for Mike and myself. Oh, we should talk about the premiere. So how long did it take you to assemble everything? And when did we have our premiere? Because I know I remember flying down for the premiere, which was a fun event. Well, I, you know, we we finished filming, and you know, we 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 filmed most of it in a day, and then the following week, uh, Mike and I did the pickup shots, and uh, so this was like in the spring of 2019, no, spring of 2018, excuse me, and then it took a while for. Mark, here's another thing. Mark ended up doing the editing too, the main editing. So Mark ended up editing it. He ended up doing music for it. And then Mike did a uh, color correction for the film. And we actually didn't get it done, completed until like the following summer, summer 2019. And we actually premiered it uh, at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention in your hotel suite. Oh, I remember. That's right. We yeah. did. And we so invited we, all our friends to come yeah. and see it. And we had, we had two showings because, you know, it was, uh, the first showing was too crowded. Yeah. Um, so we did a second showing and we did it in your room. And that was the first time we premiered it. And this was before COVID. So we all crammed in there. Right. And it, and it felt like a real premiere. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to have a live audience there. I, I felt kind of nervous, a little nervous, uh, you know, showing it for the first time. I, I was nervous to make sure the projector worked. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All those technical issues, too. And then after that, we ended up having an L.A. premiere at Mark's house a few months later in the fall. And that was one where we invited our local friends in the mm-hmm. L.A. area. And I remember you flew down and uh, our friend Sheila came down to. Right. Well, actually, we we ended up doing it the same weekend that we were filming our next film. So you guys were down here for that anyway. And so it made sense to have the, the LA premiere. And an interesting thing, I didn't know if you knew, but the Renegades episode that they filmed before the one you just did a few years ago, which was called Renegades Requiem. Requiem. Yes. Uh-huh. That's, no, that's number two. So I was in that as a, a an extra so I also got to work with Tim Russ as well and uh, <laughs> other people like, uh, you know, um, yeah, some other different, a lot of, lot of other different Star Trek actors. So that was a really great, fun experience to be part of that. So we're all, so you and I are also now part of the Renegades family. We have yes, that I, I have joined the family yeah, yeah, finally. Yeah. Yes. So you now you are a Renegade as well. So we I'm have that, to... we have that connection. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. And I, I'm ra- wrapping up my last uh, fan film. It's actually directed by Gary Davis, mm-hmm. uh, Dreadnought Domain, called The Replicants. It's a really good story, and I get to play a TOS Admiral, so it's Admiral Bennett. Not Admiral Curry, huh? No, I to, that's your your universe. I have oh, to, but we we can do cross. We can do cross maybe, films. Maybe I mean, maybe a future one. Yeah, I mean, I've played Admiral Nagura in other people's fan films, and. Mike has been Captain or Admiral Kirk in other films as well, or Admiral or Captain Kirk. So we yeah. can certainly, you know, cross over <laughs> to other films. 
They wanted me to try something different. Well, I think that's all we have for tonight, talking about the human adventure, a little bit about David Chang, myself, Bill Victor, Rukan, and films that we've done together over the past couple of years. Stay tuned for more in the future. See you at Filmland. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. So let's close out this episode by considering one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog magazine. This is for the Starship Pendant. These beautiful pieces of jewelry are authentic sculptures of the Enterprise cast in pewter, complete in tiny detailing that is blueprint accuracy and nickel-plated to a high silver luster. The pendant will let the world know that you are a Star Trek fan. The pendant comes complete with an 18-inch silver tone chain, $5.95 each plus postage. What do you think about that? It actually looks like a micro-machine. I do remember seeing this ad. Yeah, and I thought it would be great to have that. <laughs> Roughly about $20 in today's money. I mean, that that's affordable, you know. I mean, just to have a, a shiny Enterprise pendant. <laughs> if we neat. see one of those original ones at a con, I may buy it for you. Because I want to let the world know I'm a Star Trek fan. I already have several Star Trek necklaces, <laughs> but this would be great to add to it. Kind of, kind of like the uh, the pendant in um, so was it Requiem for Methuselah? No, Cat's, Cat's Paw. Paw. Cat's Paw. What they the little Enterprise that they held over the flame in that there. Lucite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you, Nanu Nanu.